Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the no judgment zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Now, a word from our sponsor. Transcendence Treatment Center is North Charleston's new private treatment center for drug and alcohol addiction. Our outpatient program is led by a highly qualified staff with years of experience in the addiction field. Enjoy the benefits of treatment while still going about your job, school, and daily life. Our treatment program uses a holistic approach to treating and healing addiction, and we provide a warm, safe, and non-judgmental environment to help you explore and work through those issues that keep you stuck in the cycle of addiction. We recognize the value and importance of family and offer family and friends support groups as well. Conveniently located off Route 526, you can find us at 3900 Leeds Avenue, Suite 101 in North Charleston, South Carolina. Call us for a free pre-screen today at 854-222-3773. And a member of our team will be happy to help you take the first steps towards your new life, a life free from addiction. You can also visit us at our website at ttreatment.org. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have Jonathan McLernan here. He is a nutrition coach and he owns Freedom Nutrition Coaching. Jonathan has a really good story about how he lost over 100 pounds, became healthy, and that something in his experience in South Africa kind of instigated all this. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So we've been ch- chatting and then we forced ourselves to press record because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. it's obvious that we, you know, could probably start talking. We've just been talking about current events, but yeah, you know, yeah. tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from and you know, how you got into traveling and then lead us up into South Africa. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm Canadian. Uh, I currently live in a city called Red Deer, which is east of the Rocky Mountains and north of Montana for the American listeners. Um, so I've had a really varied background. Uh, I've been a nanotechnology researcher. Um, I spent six years in the Navy. I was a marine engineer. Um, and ultimately, we ended up spending three years traveling around the world um, because I got tired of the politics of the military and uh, we wanted to do something different. Um, and then just kind of you know, over the next, the last 10 years have been a really interesting sort of journey in my life. And it was kind of kicked off by something that happened when we, when we were traveling. Um, so we covered about 45 countries on five continents. Um, I'm really glad that we traveled extensively when we did, because as we know, travel has kind of changed as we know it. And so, but it was when I was living in, in South Africa that uh, I, went th- I went through a traumatic experience. And because of that experience, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I was uh, very well equipped to deal with the trauma or the traumatic fallout um, from that incident. And uh, I turned to food as a way to kind of medicate my trauma and cope with everything that was happening in my in my body and my brain. 
and uh, the result was becoming like a, a binge eating food addict and i'd gained a lot of weight and got up to about 330 pounds and so that's in a in a very small nutshell and we can sort of open that nutshell and and dive into some elements of that story but that's kind of a bit of an overview yeah so how long ago was this um so that was that took place in 2011 so okay and and why were you traveling was it over 10 years ago now yeah was it just for fun were you looking for the meaning of life what was Uh, going on there we you know we were in our late 20s at the time my wife and i and uh, i just came home and said you know we kind of have two choices here we can buy a house and settle down or we can travel the world and we talked about it and we said you know you buy a house and you're kind of trapped into the, I don't know, the cycle of life that people get stuck in. And mm-hmm. everybody talks about traveling the world and puts it off until they're older. And we have the opportunity to do it when we're young because we didn't have debt and we didn't have children. And so we said, well, let's, let's travel the world. So we packed everything into storage, um, hopped on a plane to Mexico and uh, kind of started out on this adventure. And we thought maybe we'd travel for like six months. Uh, I think that felt like a long time because we traveled before, but you know, it's only ever for maybe three or four weeks at a time kind of thing. And uh, so we we had six months in mind and it ended up going on for about three years. And so, uh, and spanning, you know, we said if we added up all the the miles we spent on airplanes, we could do eight laps around the equator. Um, So we did a lot. Uh, Living in Mexico, we we loved it because, you know, people down there are extremely hospitable. it's it, as soon as they're not after your tourist dollars, <laughs> um, they're really hospitable. And uh, Mexican culture is really fantastic. It's very, um, it's very colorful and bright and lively. And I love Mexican food. And you know, um, you can't you can't see in the recording, but I'm extremely pale. I'm very white. <laughs> um, I'm clearly not Mexican. My my Scottish and Norwegian heritage really shines through brightly. Um, but you know, that was never really much of an issue, mind you. We were aware that like when it came to say corrupt police and things like that, we, we did stick out, but we made sure we had some local friends who kind of kept an eye out for us and, and, and so on. But ultimately like the violence kind of started to pick up because we lived in Guadalajara and a lot of cartel heads live in a rich neighborhood in Guadalajara. And so there was increasing conflict between like the paramilitary forces and the, and the cartels. And they're both pretty well armed. And we thought, you know, we don't want to get caught in the crossfire here, even by accident. And so we hopped on a plane and um, ended up going over to Europe and living in Italy for a period of time. Um, And then over to Poland. And then um, we spent about a year living in Poland. Uh, A minor detail there, excuse me, is when we lived in Mexico, we met a gentleman from South Africa, a young man. He actually came to Poland and taught English with us there for a period of time. And he said, hey, you should come down to South Africa. My parents run this uh, this not-for-profit organization helping underprivileged youth, and you guys would be a great fit for it. And so that's what prompted us to fly down to South Africa after a year of living in Poland, and uh, we started teaching down there. And that's kind of when the the incident took place. So we were uh, we were living out on a nature reserve, so it's a couple hundred hectares, you know, giraffes, monkeys, uh, rhinos, that kind of thing. And they had an educational center there, a dormitory for students to stay overnight, uh, uh, you know, and so on. And then like an instructor's cabin, and uh, so these buildings were kind of laid out in L shape and the instructor's cabin was sort of tucked off to the side in the woods. And so it was one night that I was, I was, you know, we were, we just had like a great day. This was August in South Africa, which is winter time. So the, the, it's dark by like, you know, six o'clock kind of thing. So it was dark and I was walking back to the cabin by myself. Everybody else was in the dining hall having a good old time. Um, I just happened to finish my dinner early and thought, okay, I'm gonna head back to the cabin. And I got there and the, the cabin door was slightly ajar and it didn't really, 
you know, I, I remember now looking at it and seeing the deadbolt, like the door was ajar and the deadbolt was still sticking out. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't really in the state of mind where I thought like something's wrong in this situation here. You know, we were connecting with our students. We we're having a great time. Um, you know, they were, they were loving the work that we were doing with them. Uh, it was just, it was a really enjoyable experience. And so I was in a very peaceful, relaxed state of mind. And plus we're on a nature reserve. They have rangers, you know, there's, there, it's this huge reserve that's surrounded by fencing and stuff like that. So there was nothing really to make me think that something should be amiss in this situation. And then I opened the door to the cabin and there's three men in there. And still it didn't fully like twig my brain because I recognized one of them and he was one of the rangers. So my first thought was, well, it should have been, why are you sitting at my table eating my food? Because <laughs> that's oh, what wow. they were doing. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, they'd ransacked the cabin and they were helping themselves to my food. Just, you know, they must have known like our patterns of movements normally. And so they knew that it'd be okay to do this. Um, so my first thought was like, you know, I recognize you because I've seen you at the gate before. Like, is there something wrong with the cabin? I didn't see the fourth guy. The fourth guy was outside the cabin. I guess he would have been keeping watch. And uh, out of nowhere comes this crack across my forehead with a rock. And that was, the, I, I remember the first hit. And now, and now I'm seeing stars. And I'm like, what the heck is happening? And my brain's kind of going into this, uh, kind of like this denial mode. Like, this can't be happening. This isn't real. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys jumped up and they barrel out of the cabin. And the, the guy that had the rock, you know, I remember him. Uh, I was wearing a golf shirt, you know, so a collared shirt with a couple buttons on it kind of thing. And I remember him grabbing that, the sort of the scrap of my shirt uh, with one hand and swinging the rock at my head with the other hand and seeing a smile on his face while he was doing that. That That's kind of like a vivid memory that I have but just before the rock like hits my head and, you know, blood starts gushing down my face because your forehead bleeds pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So now like I'm struggling to, I mean, it's already dark. It's night. I'm outnumbered. I've been hit, you know, cracked across head twice with a rock. I'm concussed. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm stunned. I'm in shock. I'm trying to, what the heck is going on here? And, you know, I get knocked down. And they just started kicking and stomping. And um, it's, th- there is like a psych, th- there is like sort of a psychological reason why they chose this sort of method to try to kill me. Because they were out to kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, not just me specifically. They didn't know me from a bar of soap. But because I am white, I say I represented something they felt had historically oppressed them and so um but for whatever reason um so i I, you know i'm a pretty big guy i'm 6'1 you know 240 like i'm not a small guy and i was able to to kind of fight my way to my feet and kind of stumble stagger uh sort of half crawl half run you know kind of just in survival mode to to the dining hall where everybody else was and for some reason they didn't chase me because they could have easily chased me and caught me and just continued beating on me, but they let me go. And I don't know why, um, but that's probably one of the things that saved my life. And we ended up um, being trapped in this building. So we got all our students in there. Like my wife was super brave in this entire experience, you know, really sort of took control of the situation. Um, a lot of the men were surprisingly very scared and like, but here's the thing a lot of the south african population is is has been extremely scarred and traumatized by violence as well like it's a very violent country um it's not just a racial conflict um there's just a lot of violence because in south africa there's eight different ethnic black groups as well so there's a lot of violence between ethnic groups as well um and so it, it was a really tough situation and we were kind of lucky because one of the students um had a, a cell phone with them and there wasn't great reception out there, but there's just a lot of things kind of lined up. They, they made a call to the police and it happened to be a senior police officer walking by when this phone rang and he decided to pick it up and dispatch some officers. 
The police in South Africa, especially low level, are corrupt and inept, and they don't care. They're there to collect a paycheck and not get hurt. That's basically how it runs. Mm-hmm. And so the, the you know the senior officer picks it up and he he ends up dispatching some police. But it takes about forty minutes to get to where we are, and to get there you have to drive like down into a valley and back up the other side so you can actually see in the distance at nighttime the flashing lights of the cop cars well before and you know you got 20 minutes before they're even going to get here and so these guys just kind of you know they've been trying to break down the doors with shovels and stuff and trying to um, we didn't know actually how many were out there at the time um, because they travel in packs of sometimes 10 to 15 so then there was 25 of us so we, we didn't know how many were out there it's dark it's nighttime they're trying to smash the doors down the shovels and things and you know it's pandemonium some people are panicking and yelling other people are like trying to gear up to fight and you know like it was just and i was concussed and stunned and you know i had a fork in my hand like i don't know i was going to defend myself with a fork or something and i was kind of slumped over um so so the guys that beat you they were still outside the building oh yeah yeah oh okay Mm -hmm. so we were kind of trapped in there for about 40 40 minutes before the police showed up and uh when when they did the, the the police were like Ah, nobody died. Okay, cool. Nobody got raped. Okay, cool. We're going to leave. They're probably gone. <laughs> and, you know, my wife was like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, one, my husband needs hospital, you know, to get to a hospital and get checked out. Two, some people saw their faces. And three, they're still out there. They're in the bushes. All They, they, they were here five minutes ago. Like, but these cops are basically just trying to wa- wash their hands of this whole thing. You know, um, they grabbed a knife that one of them had had and just picked it up barehanded, just totally contaminating the evidence. Like, just clearly they didn't watch CSI. Um, mm-hmm. But it, so it was a really kind of a frustrating experience because they weren't even going to take statements from people. And my wife, thankfully, she was very insistent that they did and so on. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it turns out that I actually killed a guy the night before. And we didn't realize that at the time. Um, but, yeah, they'd actually murdered a white farmer the night before. And so that was, that was their intent. They were, they beat him to death and that was their intent with me as well. And so to, to sort of be confronted with sort of this police ineptitude as well and their total like blase nature of it. I mean, that, that also speaks to the sort of the level of violence they see on a regular basis. They're like, ah, you didn't die. So, you know, no big deal. So anyways, we, we got ourselves out of there. We're like, you're not leaving until we, until we leave. Cause at least you guys have guns, you know? Mm-hmm. And we, we got like some transport out there and got all the students out of there and stuff like that. And so, you know, we had that, we got that all kind of um, taken care of and got ourselves away from there. But that was just kind of the, that was kind of just the start of things happening to us while we lived in South Africa. And and the first response after an incident like that is, you know, they're not going to win. We're strong and so on and so forth. You know, so we, we actually stayed in South Africa for another uh, four and a half months. And, uh, you know, there was more incidents that happened, none quite as violent as that one, but, um, there comes a point in time where you just get tired of feeling like you're under siege and being attacked and being targeted and, and so on. So it was a really, you know, uh, and I was already suffering from PTSD and we weren't sleeping at night. You know, it was just a really difficult place to be psychologically. I'm surprised you decided to stay. I think that would have turned me off and I would have been like, see us South Africa. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I look back and uh, we're like, you know, we came, we, we'd only been there for about two weeks at that time. And we were, we were um, on like a six month contract and we're like, nope, we're, we're going to stay. We're strong. Um, they're not going to win. 
uh, and and so on. Like if we leave now, it's like they win in a sense. So the, I I don't you know I look back and like probably we should have left, um, but we didn't. Yeah. And uh, you know we we made sure we beefed up security at the house that we had. Like there's already a six foot you know brick wall surrounding the property with razor wire on top of it and stuff like that. But you know truthfully that doesn't stop them. Uh, they still you know are in in that that span of time our house was broken into thirteen times. Um, and the, oh my the, gosh. yeah, the last time they broke in, um, they took all the copper pipes out of the house. And so we had to go and start living in a hostel because we had no running water because they literally cut all the copper pipes out. Like it was just, you know, and every time someone breaks into the house, you just feel violated again and again yeah. and again. And it's like, yeah. there is no safe place. And it feels like they just won't let up. And it was extremely, it was just, we just got angry. Like for me, I was just getting angrier and angrier and feeling like more and more rage um, you know, stemming originally from, of course, the first violent incident where four people attacked me for no good reason other than my skin color. And so um, that was a, you know, and, and through all of this, there's always like a logical part of the brain that goes, this isn't like you and this isn't who you are. But all these thoughts and these flashbacks and things like they're known as intrusive thoughts, you know, they, they were, they kept coming into my head. And it was, so there was also the, could I call the psychological turmoil of that? So thoughts of wanting to carry out vengeance and wanting to carry out violent revenge and things like that coming into my head. And I didn't want them there because I'm not a violent person, but they kept showing up. And uh, so then there's all this inner turmoil because I'm like, you know, I'm not an angry, violent person who wants to do this. And yet I'm having thoughts of this all the time and I don't know how to make them go away. Um, so we, we eventually, and of course, every time something happens, it really just triggers it more. Mm -hmm. And so we realized we, we have to leave. Like, and so we did, we flew back to Australia where my wife is from and we spent some time about three months living there and just really psychologically decompressing. Um, and I, you know, I got some work on a farm, but by that point, like I had gained a huge amount of weight cause I'd been doing a lot of eating because that was one of my ways of just basically trying to, I call it change the channel in my head because food is more socially acceptable than, uh, say drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not that that's stops people from using drugs and alcohol but... <laughs> no no but uh i think like i you know because I, I look back and i'm like an entirely different person than i was then and it's partly because of the growth that's come th from going through this experience and there's you know um because people if they were to meet me now they you know they wouldn't recognize the person that, that i was that i'm describing now going back you know more than 10 years and uh and so i kind of share that because it's like it's this story has um a hopeful element to it as well but uh, I had the presence of mind at least to recognize that it would be really bad for me if I was to turn to drugs and alcohol to try and cope with my trauma and my PTSD. And so, and it wasn't that I set out to become a binge eating food addict or to gain like over a hundred pounds. Like that wasn't, it's not like that was the goal, but it was a tool. It was like the only tool I really had. I had a few sessions with a, with a trauma counselor and they were helpful because it kind of helped me to understand at least a little bit of what was happening in my brain. But understanding what's happening doesn't make the stuff go away it just means right. and some maybe it's even more frustrating sometimes because you know it's happening and you're helpless to change it, it you know you, you can't really speed up the clock in terms of the healing process it makes sense on a spiritual level that you began eating because the spiritual reason for weight gain or being overweight is you don't feel safe mm-hmm and so here you had this 
experience where you got beaten and then on top of that the cops didn't care which is more trauma and then you stayed and got your house you know broken into you're targeted all the time so it's just more levels of trauma thrown upon the original trauma yeah 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 and you know i I remember like the night before we left um we stayed with some some friends well i say they were friends they were acquaintances of people that we were connected with and so they they made arrangements for us to stay at their house the night before we flew out of johannesburg and uh they had like a little guest house on their property it wasn't a big property but it was you know the guest house maybe 20 feet from their from their actual other main house and uh there's a garage attached to the guest house and so my wife and i are, are like we've, we've been on edge for like over four months straight like one would sleep the other would be awake we just like kept watch you know we had weapons by our bed and all this kind of stuff and and i remember i remember like there was this noise outside and instantly we're wide awake and we're ready to fight because we're like someone's trying to break in again and you know we we kind of positioned ourselves um behind behind one of the beds um so we could see if someone came through the door but they couldn't necessarily spot where we were because it was dark and we were you know we were trying to text the owner of the house um, without creating much light to say like we're hearing some noises outside turns out all it was was he actually forgot to turn off the light in the garage and went out but in our in our in our traumatized state like we were going into fight or flight mode we're ready to fight we're about to be attacked and so on so we're probably on the verge of a nervous breakdown and and, you know if you meet people like who've come from south africa and left that world behind um it's you you would look at their their sort of perspective and their worldview and you would think it's a pretty harsh one um but it's like when you've come from that environment you it kind of makes sense um and so anyways we were pretty happy the next day to be on the plane and getting out of south africa and and flying back to australia we did actually go back three months later we flew back and stayed there for about three weeks um because we still actually had time on our contract but we we opted we opted out of our contract was look we just we can't do that but we wanted to have a positive experience in south africa we didn't want to and so we flew to the Western Cape and just stayed in Cape Town with some other friends that we'd been connected with. And we made sure that we were with locals at all times. And um, usually, so, you know, and, and South Africans down there, they very often carry carry guns because, well, you kind of need them. And so, you know, we at least felt a little bit a little bit safer. And like, you know, South Africa is a beautiful country. And there are a lot of hospitable and really kind people who want to share in the beauty of South Africa. But there's there's this culture of extreme violence down there as well that's, you know for an outsider it's hard to understand but it's like you can almost cut the tension with a knife anywhere you go where does that come from do you know um a clash of cultures of many different cultures because so south africa has kind of been nicknamed the rainbow nation um, because there's so many different ethnic groups in there because lots of people have migrated down to south africa in hopes of like a better life so you have you know you ask any native South African and they hate Nigerians. Why? Because the majority of Nigerians, well, they experience discrimination when they go down there for starters. Um, and so when they can't find work and a better life, they usually get involved in the drug trade. And so then you, get, you know, Nigerians develop a reputation of being drug dealers. And so they all seem to hate Nigerians. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But then you look at, there's eight different ethnic black groups and none of them are, are, are really originally from that area of South Africa. 
uh, they, they came down from further north and they were in competition for territory and formed tribes and things and killed off a lot of the indigenous people um, in, in that area. And so there's always been this sort of clash of um, the different sort of black African subcultures and, and different ethnicities. So they, they have some really strongly held beliefs around like masculinity and femininity and, and rituals and things like that. And one, one culture will have a different ritual than another one and so on. And, and so there's just this constant clash of cultures and, and languages. There's, there's, there's all these different languages as well. There's like 11 different official languages. And so it's really hard to form a, a cohesive group when they're always fighting with each other. And then you have, then you add like poverty and socioeconomic disparity into the mix um, and competition for resources and things like that. And so it's just, there's a lot of crime, a lot of petty crime, a lot of violent crime. Um, women, uh, I think one in four women down there has been gang raped and one in two women has been raped. Um, that's, those are statistics South Africa would rather not people not be aware of. Um, but, there's a cultural phenomenon down there where, because a lot of like rituals for being a man or being masculine uh, involve uh, either sleeping with a woman or fathering a child or things like that, um, mm -hmm. or sleeping with a virgin. And so, you know, it'll involve sometimes kidnapping young girls and raping them as, you know, to take their virginity to prove that you're a man or things like, like it's just stuff that we, we can't even fathom because it's not really been something that we've grown up with. And, and yet down there, that's like been the experience. And so, um, it sounds like hell kind of is, it's kind of like I living mean, in prison. It, it, you know, I'm from New York city and a lot of what you're describing sounds like New York city too. You know, you have a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages and a lot of people stuffed into a very small amount of space, which creates a lot of tension, a lot of darkness um yeah. you know energetically um yeah wow so yeah. you you stayed in south africa um so you were medically treated there how was mm -hmm. that i mean you know that, that was actually pretty professional i will say and and ultimately it was, it was i was concussed but thankfully i wasn't knocked out like um because if i'd been knocked out and just collapsed they would have just kept beating me until i was dead like that's what they do um because it's you take a trauma it's kind of a hurt people hurt people and this is their way of sort of taking back like i was just a representation having white skin meant that i was a representation of you know something they felt had historically oppressed them that's not actually true i mean i'm from canada i had you know nothing to do with their past history but they didn't know that mm -hmm. all they saw was one element of who i am and, and and so on but uh they actually have some pretty good like pretty good doctors they have some pretty good medical training over there and and where i live in fact we have many many south african doctors here even in my own city because many of their most highly qualified medical professionals first of all if you want to get trained in like trauma and gunshot wounds and things stab wounds and things like that you'll get a lot of that training in south africa but eventually it's like they want to leave and you know we, we want more doctors here and so we have a lot of so in fact our family doctors south african and uh they all leave because they just it's like living in prison over there. So you can have a pretty high standard of living over there in one sense if you're a highly trained professional, but you're going to live in a compound and you're going to live in a gated community and then your house is going to be gated and walled and you're going to have razor wire and bars in your doors and bars in your window and armed security and so on. So you're basically living in prison. And uh, it's it's really, yeah, it's it's hard to describe because if you were to go to South Africa as a tourist and maybe go to... Um, 
I can't, I can't think of the name of the national park, but anyways, up in the northeast where you can watch the big five and stuff. So if you were to go there as a tourist, you would have a really sanitized South African experience. Most people will treat you kindly. Um, you're going to be with like armed guards most of the time. And uh, you're going to be kept in certain areas where, you know, more or less, you're probably going to have a safe experience. And then you leave. And uh, but when you live there, it's totally different. Um it's gonna it's gonna be an entirely yeah, i i get that because growing up in new york you have to be hyper vigilant yeah okay and you have to be street smart it's almost like if you appear weak or you're not you appear that you don't seem to have direction or you don't know where you're going you make yourself a target yeah um a lot of people don't understand that you know if you didn't grow up in the city like that um you're very aware and i'm still like this i don't live in new york anymore but i'm very aware and and this can even happen say you have you know a parent with mental illness or uh, or suffer from alcoholism you can grow up hyper vigilant because you had to learn you know is daddy drunk and do right. I have to modify my behavior or stay out of the way or find a hiding place or what's right. mom's mood right now? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is she going to flip out over something? So if you become that hyper vigilant person, and that's extremely stressful yeah. because yeah. the adrenaline is running through your body, you overload your body, and you, it eventually it's going to cause some problems so physically you recovered how did you heal psychologically and emotionally what helped you yeah that was quite a journey um in a sense because the the first thing is we we were living in turkey um not long after we left south africa we went back to turkey where my brother lives and spent some time living with him there and again like and it's funny we lived in the city of istanbul which is like 17 million people but it's actually it's quite a safe city you know um, it's a lot of people crammed together. There's not a lot of crime there. Um, and, you know, it's a predominantly Muslim country. Um, they're pretty secular and relaxed in a sense, but culturally speaking, they're a Muslim country. And so because sort of uh, what was it? Their, their sense of morals and values really kind of dom- dominates culturally, and they, they tend to abide by these rules, they're actually pretty, in one sense, I hate to say it, like civilized people. Like you're pretty safe there. Mm-hmm. Now they drive like maniacs. Um, <laughs> you know, you take your life in your hands when you get in a taxi. But by and large, again, they're like a pretty hospitable people, and you know, there, it's not there's not crime there, but it's 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 punished pretty severely. Not as bad as Saudi Arabia or anything like that. But you know, like people behave pretty pretty well over there, and so you feel pretty safe. So that's just the backstory. But I, I was I was there and kind of tired of being angry. Um, it just it gets tiring being triggered and having flashes of rage and being angry all the time. And I really didn't want this in me because it's not who I am. And I, and I knew that. And so I made the decision that I was going to try to forgive these men. Um, it's not that I ever saw them again. Um, I was I was requested to come back for the court hearing because um, they, they did catch three out of the four. Um, and they were looking for them because they had committed murder. and uh, But they didn't catch the fourth one. But anyways, I opted not to go back for the court hearing because I just I really didn't want to go back there. Um, we were out of there and so on. So, but I made the decision that I wanted to forgive these men. And that was a, 
that was sort of a monumental decision in one in one respect because but it wasn't though that i just decided to forgive them and ta-da i'm free there's a process to go through and so every time that i would feel triggered or i would feel the rage starting to sort of well up within me and like the violent thoughts were starting to appear um i would i would consciously strive to cultivate a sense of compassion for them human so humanize them instead of just seeing them as these inhumane monsters i would and it's not to absolve them or excuse their behavior but i would try to understand what must have happened to them because what got them to the place where they became murderers because they they weren't born murderers and so something in their human condition like and and probably they'd they'd suffered from violence they'd been victims of crime and, and so on and and the cycle just got perpetuated and so every time that i would i would have these sort of violent thoughts come into my head i would then counter it by trying to cultivate this sense of compassion for them and in that i i started to develop a sense of forgiveness for them and forgiveness wasn't really about again absolving them of what they did i believe that everybody has to answer for for the choices they make eventually in life but it was about setting myself free so that when i thought about the incident it didn't make me angry it didn't it didn't hold power over me anymore and so that was that was one of the one of the significant steps in in healing was was forgiving them um but then the the then i had to move into dealing with myself because that that was kind of the next stage in the journey Mm-hmm. So I developed a really disordered sense of self because I'd been, you know, I went from being like fairly strong and athletic to being obese. That wasn't who I, I'd never been obese before. And all of a sudden, like I've been, ta- my athleticism had really been taken away from me. Everything hurt. Everything was inflamed. Sleeping was a struggle like regulating my moods and so on. Like it's, it's actually in one sense, look back and it's pretty remarkable that I had the presence of mind to to forgive. And that was one of the first steps. But I, it was, I was in so much pain in, in, in a sense of like feeling that rage and not wanting that poison in my soul anymore that, that I knew I had to do that in order to start start being free from that. But I, I, I then developed a really disordered relationship with myself and my body. And I began to be angry at and hate my own body because of how I felt it had betrayed me in a sense. Um, and, and, you know, I, I look back now, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in a very, very different place emotionally and mentally now. And I love my body and I respect it and I honor it. But back then, like, uh, and this is all part of my journey of growth, really. It, it, I went, it felt like my, my athleticism, my strength, my youthfulness, all of these things had been taken away from me. And, uh, you know, I, I waded into this culture of like diet and weight loss and trying to figure out like, how do, how do I, how do I get back the body that I used to have and the physical ability I used to have? And I tried a lot of stupid things, <laughs> fad diets and things like that, because I was trying to find a quick and easy way out of it. If I could just lose the weight and so on. And so that set up like a multi-year struggle with yo-yo dieting and trying to lose weight. And, you know, I've lost over 100 pounds and kept it off. But I, I, I joke and say I've actually probably lost more like 600 pounds because um, I'd lost and regained weight so many times that, uh, you know, I was a classic kind of yo-yo dieter. And so it wasn't really until about four years ago that um, I'd hired a coach and he shone a light on sort of what the glaring problem was. Um, You know, he asked me this question. He said, Jonathan, if you make a list of all the things that you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? And that one just stopped me cold because I was like, I'm not on the list. 
Like it's not that I was near the bottom of the list of things I love and value. It was I was not on the list, period. And it really showed this gap between where I was and where I needed to be. So all this time I'd been, you know, I'd been a high level, uh, you know, you, you know, nutrition. I'm well educated. Uh, I was involved in the supplement industry. I ran a supplement store. Um, I had access to, you know, just about every substance under the planet. And I couldn't seem to get results for myself. I could, I could coach other people and help them, but I couldn't seem to help myself. And it was an incredibly frustrating place to be. And so when he shone a light like that, then I had to start this journey of like, well, what does self-love look like? What does self-compassion look like? How do I learn to love myself, especially as a male? Um, because in, in masculine, you know, I, I love being male and I love masculine strength. I think it's really, you know, powerful and, and can be a force for, for good in this world. But there are elements of masculinity that are not necessarily healthy either. And uh, I didn't know how to start learning to, to love myself and cultivate self-compassion because we don't really talk about that a lot as men. And uh, so that, that kind of started this journey. And thankfully, he was he was really good at helping me with that. And uh, as I repaired my relationship with myself and with my body, I was kind of able to repair my relationship with food and uh, stop hating my body um, for where it was at and start, instead of trying to beat or force my body into submission, um, I started working with it, trying to heal it. And ultimately, I think that's what led to being able to lose the weight and keep it off. Um, and so people would ask, you know, how long did it take to lose 100 pounds? When I tell them, like, six years, they're kind of disappointed because they, they want to hear a simple answer. Uh, it took about eight months. Uh, you know, I, I, I just started the you know, Mediterranean diet, and about eight months later, the weight just, just kept melting off. And it's like, no, <laughs> my journey was a little more difficult than that. So where you were on that list of things that you love and care about, where do you think when you look back, even before what happened in South Africa, were you low on that list? I think so. Um, <laughs> my, my wife used to tease me and call me the Tin Man. Um, now, I, I look back and I, I realize that I'm actually an empath. Like I, um, As a kid, though, like I used to have temper tantrums. And so I look back and I realize what that was really was um, I had all these huge emotions. I felt a lot of things. And I, I took on these these things from other people. And then I didn't know what to do with it. It had to come out somehow. So it would come out as a temper tantrum. I got into a lot of fights as a kid. Because um, I would fly off the handle. You know, I'd emotionally get emotional and overreact, all that kind of stuff. And But then I, I, I got to a certain point where I didn't want to get into fights anymore. Um, and so I started just to suppress the emotions. And because uh, I thought, like, you know, at, at some point, something could go... Could, could go wrong. I could actually get seriously hurt in one of these fights or I could, someone could come back and want to retaliate and jump me with like four or five guys or whatever, which is ironic given that it happened later in my life. But, mm -hmm. you know, I just realized that I was getting to an age where getting into fights was getting more and more risky and uh, I had to do something about it. So I actually just started to suppress the emotions. And uh, so I developed this pattern of behavior where I would hide my emotions because um, I didn't want to fly off the handle and get into fights with people. And I wanted to be sort of more in control. And so there, there was probably this, this pattern established earlier of, of really sort of tightly controlling my emotions. Um, and so there, there wasn't really, you know, um, and I come from a loving household. I'm really fortunate. My parents were, were loving and um, they're still together 43 years later. Like, um, yeah, it's really fantastic. But so I can't really, you know, it's not like I can say I had like a, a bad or an unloving childhood or something like that, but 
really i mean i, I think society kind of influenced us in a certain way growing up i'm like you had rambo and homer is like your homer simpson is like your your two role models like you're a fat lazy doofus or you're a super muscular hyper masculine you know superhero or something like that there's really kind of no in between and and really it wasn't necessarily encouraged that men talk about having emotions or feelings despite the fact that that's what makes us human yeah i find that so whether i kind of had to learn all of these things whether you're male or Go female ahead. if you are um feeling something negative labeled as negative that's not looked upon as okay and so you end mm. up suppressing that do are yeah. do you identify as being an empath mm -hmm. yeah very much so yeah because you sound like an empath um and so it's interesting because um i think now i know i'm a could i say a healthy empath i don't necessarily take you know i work with people um and I, I hear a lot of difficult things in people's experience. Like I, I say I'm a nutrition coach or a nutritionist, but I, I, I say that's really the cover story. Because um, people come to me because they want to lose weight. And absolutely, you know, I have the nutrition education and the experience and so on to help you with losing weight. But ultimately, we're going to uncover what the real issues are. And uh, most people have something in their, their history, their backstory, um, that has nothing to do with food as to why they really struggle with the relationship with food and their body themselves and so on. And so, um, but now I'm able to work with people. I'm able to hear the things that they go through. I'm able to hear their struggles and not necessarily take it on personally. Because I, I also recognize that if I try to do that, that's actually disempowering to them. Um, so I say to people that I'm, I'm a tour guide. I'm not a Sherpa. Uh, I think that's a really healthy way to approach being an empath. Yeah, another word for it is conscious empath. Mm -hmm. That you are conscious of your empathy and your ability to feel the emotions of others, but you don't take that on to yourself. Yeah. It's yeah. just extra information. And oftentimes it's too much information and yeah. none of your business information. And, you know, so I teach that to my students, like my energy healing students, how to shield themselves and be aware of their feelings. And if, um, they're feeling something it doesn't necessarily mean that it's coming from them yeah it yeah. could be coming from outside of them yeah so i think it's just necessary to be kind of aware of these things because i mean it's natural to have this desire to want to help people and to want to take away their pain and to want to make their life easier but you know i look back over some of the experiences that i've been through in life that have been extremely difficult and they've also been the impetus for the greatest growth that i've experienced as a human being as well and uh and so if we try to shield ourselves from ever experiencing difficult things or difficult emotions we really stunt our ability to grow as as human beings and that's not to say that we deliberately seek out hard experiences but life is hard and life is gonna yeah. throw like hard experiences your way without you even going and looking for it and so um i think it's really helpful to uh, actually just be able to cultivate this uh, a sense of resilience in the face of hardship Instead of, because I think if we, if we go through life with a sense of entitlement, like somehow my life should always be perfect, I should always be happy, and if I'm not happy, something is wrong, we're actually setting ourselves up to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. But when we go through life and understand that life is going to challenge me, I'm going to feel some difficult emotions, there's going to be grief, there's going to be sadness, there's going to be frustration, and so on, and that's a normal, natural part of life, I think we actually end up happier and more content because we just accept that there, there are some things that we're going to go through that are going to be really difficult. And, and there's even the opportunity to see it as, as like a growth experience. Yeah, totally.
Totally. I mean, I would like to live the rest of my life and not ever get triggered. That is not going to (laughs) happen. I don't get triggered as much as I used to, Mm -hmm. but I still get triggered. And then I just use it as information. Like I'm very aware that, yes, I'm getting triggered right now. And then if I have time to reflect on it or now or later, I will, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't like dismiss it and say well there's something about this that is triggering me why and i I like to say that emotions are like a check engine light and so on on a dashboard in a car if something's wrong with the engine you'll get that little yellow light that comes on that says check engine but it doesn't tell you exactly what the problem is it just tells you that something needs your attention and it needs you know further exploration to figure out what's going on most people uh, myself included in the past um they they do the equivalent of putting a piece of black electrical tape over that check engine light. Now I can't see it, so it's not a problem. So I was using food to bury it, you know. But ultimately, it um, ends up in some kind of breakdown or meltdown later because it's been ignored and ignored and ignored until the problem gets so big it can't be ignored anymore and you no longer have the opportunity to deal with it on your own terms. Yeah, see, I'm the person that my tire sensor light goes on in my car and I can't ignore it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, oh my God, I hope this goes away. Maybe it's because of the temperature change. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. I'm like, nope. And then I start looking at my tires to make sure they're not deflating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's it's you know everyone's journey is is kind of individual and and unique and so um yeah i'm i'm you know one, one of the things that doesn't really appear in the in, in the story we haven't really touched on it, we don't have to necessarily dive into it is but i mean i got in, into a toxic business relationship um when i was sort of really at my most emotionally vulnerable you know because it was somebody that you know that, that had the appearance of being successful somebody i knew and i trusted and looked up to and so on and, uh, you know, it, it ended up being that this guy was a, a narcissist and a sociopath and a pathological liar. And so he was he was like the perfect foil to me being an empath. And he he, he preyed on me perfectly. And, uh, you know, ultimately that cost me my, my life savings and uh, left me with a huge amount of debt a few years ago. And so um, but again, I'm not I'm not angry about that experience because it was a really, you know, obviously it was a really difficult thing to go through. And, uh, you know, I narrowly avoided like filing for bankruptcy and uh but ultimately it it you know i never would have known what to look for in terms of behavior patterns um now i do because mm-hmm. i've had that experience it's it's um you know i think very often we don't go into human relationships thinking this person could be a narcissist or a sociopath like you know especially as an empath we generally you know you know i'm generally pretty open and i want to give people the benefit of the doubt um and i don't want my bad bad experience experiences to sort of take away my my desire my you know my joy really and my desire to share that with people yeah but i bet you can smell a narc a mile away now (laughs) well it's it's a lot easier to to know what to look for i'll put it put it that way um yeah i had a i had a um supervisor that i later realized was also a narcissist mm -hmm. but i you know like i at the time i didn't know what the signs were yeah. So. Yeah. Well, because there's so many like narcissism um, operate is a spectrum. It's not like a black or white switch. And then there's there's different categories or different behaviors. But I mean, 
really ultimately, you know, with a narcissist, everything is about them and it's about manipulating other people because of course there's an emptiness on the inside. There, there's, there's something missing um, or there's, you know, because narcissism isn't really a, necessarily something you're born with, but a, a, maybe there's a propensity towards it, but it's something that's kind of cultivated and very often early in childhood, not deliberately necessarily, but um, yeah, unfortunately, like my, my brother is is married to a narcissist. And um, again, they've been married for about eight years and he's got two kids. And so he's in one sense um, stuck in that situation because he's got two young kids and he probably wouldn't win a custody battle because he's he's the dad not that he not that he wants to do that necessarily but it's like it's a really difficult situation but once he figured out sort of the situation that he's in you know i kind of laid it out for him step by step and was like all of these behaviors make sense when you look at it through this lens you know now at least he's kind of equipped to coexist with this person yeah i really feel for him yeah well, it's he's he's most concerned about his oldest boy because his oldest he's he's about four, he'll be five soon. Um, but he's a really sensitive like boy, like my brother. My brother is probably also an empath, um, and he's he's very sensitive, and so he he's worried about his emotional development, right? And so if he if his son was like left alone with his um, my brother's wife, you know, the more damage could be done. And so my brother is is like a stabilizing influence in his life, or at least trying to be a stabilizing influence. And so um, sometimes people will find themselves in these situations that you can't necessarily easily extract yourself from. Yeah. Like my brother lives. My brother lives in Turkey. His wife is from Romania. You know, where who, who, who where is the custody battle going to be fought? You know that kind of stuff, right? It's just logistically speaking. So I, I mean, my inclination is that he's going to stick it out until the kids are have left home, basically. But uh, and then, you know. I mean, narcissists can heal. It is possible. It's not outside the realm of possibility. It's just extremely difficult and extremely unlikely. Yeah. So when you were a child and you were throwing those tantrums, mm -hmm. do you think that you were perhaps picking up on some unspoken emotions within your household and then acting those out when they became overwhelming? Um, there is that possibility. I mean, my, my dad has a, um, a traumatic past and, uh, you know, he, he did his best to, in a sense, shield us from that. You know, he really, he's a wonderful dad, very caring, very loving. But I mean, uh, my grandfather on his side was, you know, a World War II um, veteran and he was captured by the Germans and was a prisoner of war for a period of time. And so it came back like just a damaged man. And back then, nobody understood even what to do or how to deal with it. And so he didn't know how to deal with his kids either. And so he never showed his kids love. And, um, you know, so and my dad's twin brother committed suicide at uh, at like 21. And so, and really, he got no support from his, his dad in that situation. And, you know, he said he's, he maybe put his hand on my shoulder, like at the funeral. And that was about his, the most affection he got. Mm -hmm. That wasn't like, say, a backhand kind of thing. And so for my dad he really didn't want to repeat that pattern of behavior with us his kids but he also had never really got the help that he needed and so i think he he fought to hide a lot of that from us um, because he didn't want us to, to to know about it or to experience the suffering he'd experienced and so he was really actually doing the best he could and he, like he's a really wonderful man like he's a very good-hearted man and uh you know about 10 or 11 years ago he 
you know, he had a bit of a, a breakdown where all of it came out. And, you know, he got the help that he needed to work through a lot of that stuff. And, you know, he became, he was able to be like more affectionate with us, more open to it, you know. And, uh, you know, now, of course, I see him with my son and he just absolutely adores being a grandfather. <laughs> like, and uh, so I, I think really my dad is actually probably an empath as well. Um, but again, eh, hey, back then they didn't well, know Here's what to the do. thing with empaths, though, and if you have empathic children, you can't hide things from them. They yeah. know things and they feel things and they may not know where it's coming from, but it's like the elephant in the room, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and I'm sure you picked up probably on a lot of information, even subconsciously from your father. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my mom, you know, she's a wonderful, wonderful lady, like very, very talented, very creative, very artistic, but her whole life, she's been very insecure. Um, and again you know where that comes from we, we you know it's, it would be really hard to pin it down but it's like she's this incredibly talented human being who never really got to fully realize that ability because she felt so insecure and sort of hid in the shadows but you know she could create just about anything with her hands you know she could draw she could paint she could bake she could sew she could knit and crochet like she just this unbelievable creative and artistic streak um but never really was able to properly express it and she always struggled with her weight and felt insecure about that <coughs> and so th there was that on her side and so it's interesting to see as an adult and as an empath and uh, that i'm aware of all of these things to, to witness the struggles that they still live with to this to this day you know and uh in one sense it's really a testament to kind of their their strength of character the fact that you know again they 42 years married still a loving marriage supportive marriage um you know it's so people of you know generations past like it's it's pretty remarkable what they've gone through and lived with and endured and uh, sort of managed oh, to yeah. keep it together. Yeah, I mean, if you do any kind of family history and you look into your your ancestors, I mean, <laughs> literally, you, they could have had a child that was your ancestor and then they died. You know, if they hadn't had that one child, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. it's pretty amazing. So it, it's, um, yeah, so it's been, it's, you know, all of these things, having gone through them, it's in one sense, it's really empowering because it means that I'm, I'm able to understand a little bit more about why people do what they do. And, and in that sense, kind of help them to see it. And so um, I like to say all behavior makes sense. And I don't mean that all behavior is ideal, but I mean, all behavior makes sense. When we understand what's happening in the brain, when we understand what's happening, you know, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, it makes sense. And understanding that is what allows us to develop compassion for others. And, you know, I, I treat compassion like it's, it's a middle of the road approach. So I'll give an example. If someone was, let's say a client I'm working with and they're halfway through a bottle of wine, you know, it's been a hard day and they're just slugging the wine and I bump into them and I go, oh, you're, you're halfway down a bottle of wine. Well, um, the, the, the coach that's not very good would try to coerce them to stop drinking. Like, you're a dummy, you're an idiot, why are you doing this? This doesn't work, you know, this is going against your goals. Why would you know better than this? And so on. Well, that's not very helpful and just, just brings up like shame, guilt, and regret. But the other side of the coin is enabling. Oh, well, you're already halfway down the bottle. You might as well finish the rest of it. Um, 
that's not helping them either. And so compassion is a really, really middle of the road. And it's like, hey, you're halfway through a bottle of wine. What's going on? Let's, uh, let's try to understand what's happening here and how you got here. Because if we can understand this, we might, you know, because we know that it's not helping you, but it's, well, it's not helping you long term, but right now it's, it's being used as a solution to a problem. So let's figure out what's happening, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people use that as a solution. Well, you know, that is a, an easy way to change the channel in your head. Yeah. It's that that's the, the go-to for relaxation, to have a good time for, partying i mean i started reacting badly to alcohol a couple of years ago and i just stay away from it for the most part and then you realize how it, the whole drinking infiltrates everything culturally mm-hmm. on social media what people do for fun and yeah and then and then it and then when i realized that i it turned me off even more yeah to alcohol yeah, you think about that, and because I, I very rarely will consume alcohol. Um, if if uh, you know if somebody offers me um, maybe a, a micro brewed beer that someone has handcrafted, I think I have an appreciation for the artisan nature of that that beer. <clears throat> I have no interest in drinking some sort of mass produced volume of you know cheap cheap beer that yeah, it's not the same <laughs> experience. Right. Um, so the number of times, like I might have had one or two beers this year, kind of thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't keep it in the house because I also look at it and I go, it doesn't really help me with where I want to go with regards to my health. Um, I want to be healthy and active and physically present in my son's life, for example, and if I have other kids. And so I weigh a lot of my my decisions around eating and what I consume and put into my body around, does this support my desire to be a healthy, present, engaged father? And if it doesn't, um, it's not that difficult for me now to say, you know what, this, this isn't, uh, I don't want to do that because this doesn't support me being, you know, my, my love for my, my son is far greater than my desire to, you know, eat something that is somewhat indulgent, but really detrimental to my health. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to look at it. Yeah. Well, I say for people, if you, like, ultimately, we need an emotionally compelling reason why we're willing to be uncomfortable. Because let's say somebody who does want to lose weight. Well, whatever path you take to try and lose that weight, it's going to be uncomfortable. Because you have, for example, a famine biology, just biologically speaking, that wants to hold on to that fat because it's a famine reserve. It's supposed to keep you alive in times of food scarcity. Our bodies are, are biologically wired to hold on to that. Then you have all of the emotional baggage that is connected to why you're probably carrying that extra weight around. And so metabolizing that or processing that is going to be an uncomfortable process. And then you confront the behavior patterns and the sense of judgment you might feel towards yourself and so on. So there's all these things that are going to be uncomfortable. And so... Um, again, it's almost like when we acknowledge that the process is going to be difficult and uncomfortable, it gets easier than if we start with the idea that it's supposed to be fast and easy and painless. We're, we're able to do it when we have a strong enough, like an emotionally compelling reason. And so I say for me, it was my son being mm-hmm. born and wanting to be, uh, a, you know, I, I was already like pretty healthy. Um, but it's, it's like that that's been strengthened a hundred times over my desire to be healthy because I want to be present in his life. I want to, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm 39 going on 40. 
and oh, you know, I'll be 40 and he'll be a year old. I'll be 50. He's going to be 10 years old. Like I want to be able to run and play with him. I don't want to be able to be like, dad has to sit on the couch, you know, cause uh, he can't keep up with you kid, you know? And so, yeah. I mean, if you, if you make a decision to be healthy, um, you know, like my reason would be cause I want to live a long time Yeah. and I want to be as active and as healthy as possible for the rest of my time here on the planet. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I look at, you know, um, like sugar, we just had Halloween recently, you know, and, uh, so I look at like mass sugar consumption. It really doesn't do anything for us in terms of our health. It's, it's literally only enjoyable when it's in your mouth. The moment it hits your stomach, the problems start, but it's like, it's a slow acting. I don't want to say poison. Cause that's, that's like a pretty strong word. That's not the same thing as like arsenic, but it certainly isn't helping us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I don't say never, but I rarely eat like junk food, you know, because I think to myself, I really like the brain I have. And so probably one of my biggest fears would be to develop something like Alzheimer's or dementia. Now, Alzheimer's and dementia have actually sometimes been referred to as type three diabetes. So there's an issue with the brain's ability to handle and process glucose, which is our brain's primary fuel. And so we could look at mass sugar consumption and go, oh, there's an issue there, right? And and the thing is diabetes, or sorry, um, dementia or Alzheimer's is neurodegeneration. By the time the symptoms express themselves, maybe in your 50s, 60s, 70s, or even 80s, these things have been in development for 20 or 30 years. And so it's maybe it's that I'm, I'm at this stage in life where I'm kind of reaching the middle, middle of my journey. If I'm, you know, blessed to live a long life, um, where I recognize that I have to be a little more thoughtful about this. Cause I can't, I can't just abuse my body with junk food and kind of expect it to bail me out. Mm-hmm. Eventually it catches up to you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I call it, I call it brain driven weight loss. The, the, the process that I work with people on, because uh, you know, there's so much that goes into the brain's the driver of the behavior, but there's so much to figure out. You know, it's not just uh, like habits are one thing because the brain, I, I love that. It's really neat how our brains can form habits. It's also can be problematic. Um, look at, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We look at our sense of identity and acting in congruence who we, who with who we see ourselves to be. So for example, when I identified as the jolly fat guy, if I tried to behave in a way that didn't align with that, e.g. losing weight, I would end up sabotaging myself. Why? Because my primal brain goes, hang on a sec, you're the jolly fat guy, and this is not how the jolly fat guy acts. You know? Then we have uh, things like our emotional environment and our emotional health, and then we have our mental health, and so on. So when you piece all these different things together, you go, oh my gosh, okay, you know, the old paradigm of eat more, or sorry, eat less, move more, like... It's, it's, it's so incomplete. It's not even funny. Yeah. And so, um, well, yeah. It's all about be... calories in and calories out. And yeah, see how I mean, that's working. Well, that's kind of like emotionally divorcing yourself from the process and trying to use your cerebral, like your logical brain. We're going yeah. to, we're going we're gonna to do this like a calculator. And it's like, there is, there is value in creating awareness around what you eat. And so for some people, that could be a starting point to count calories. But ultimately, nobody wants to do that for the rest of their life. Let's mm-hmm. be real. It's not yeah. that much. Nobody wants to weigh their food and count calories. And so 
It's like we need a different way. And like eating with awareness and mindfulness, uh, intuitive eating sometimes gets a little bit misunderstood as well. Because I say you can't intuitively eat junk food. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's engineered to hijack your brain. You can't win trying to intuitively eat junk food. Um, so, that, so I call it informed eating. So um, now, for example, uh, let's say I have a little bowl of nuts, you know, maybe some Brazil nuts, some macadamia, some almonds, and some cashews. And I'll eat them one at a time, and I'm going to taste every single nut that I eat, and I'm going to enjoy it. And in my old, very emotionally distressed, uh, mentally unhealthy state, I would have jammed the you know entire fistful in my mouth, you know, chewed and swallowed in like three bites, and there was no enjoyment in the process. And now I can derive so much enjoyment from food because I eat with mindfulness, awareness, I'm present, I taste the food, I don't feel a sense of guilt around it. And I really love when I'm like nourishing my body. It's really quite a quite a enjoyable process. Um, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, I mentioned, you know, at the time of recording that we had Halloween not so long ago. And for the first time in probably six or eight weeks, I ate like uh, Reese's peanut butter cup. And uh, it, it tasted good. I'm not going to lie. I was like, man, that tastes really good. <laughs> um, but it wasn't long afterwards where I didn't feel that great. And I go, oh, yeah, that's why I don't eat these things. Because it doesn't take long afterwards where I go, huh, feel a little bit off. So the, but we live in a world that's filled with emotional anesthetic. I think that's another challenge that we face. Freely or cheaply available emotional anesthetic, whether that's Netflix, alcohol, junk food, um, video games. And so because of that, rather than do the challenging work of, of working through and metabolizing and letting go of these difficult emotions and experiences, we just sort of numb it along the way. And so I think that's one of the, the, the biggest challenges that we face in trying to, to tackle something like this. Yeah. And whatever you resist persists. Yeah. That's one yeah. of my other favorite sayings. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, Jonathan, I so enjoyed talking with you and I thank you so much for sharing your stories. Um, can you let the audience know how to reach you in case they're interested in working with you? Yeah, by all means, um, freedomnutritioncoach.com would be uh, my, my website. That's a simple way to find me. Um, I do have a resource called Crush Your Cravings. Um, so if you just go to freedomnutritioncoach.com slash book, it will take you to page, you enter your email address, your name, and I'll send you a copy of Crush Your Cravings. And in there, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of show you how to start this process of becoming more mindful around this simple uh, four-step process to basically beat your cravings and take back control of your relationship with food. It's actually really powerful. And so I put this free resource together for people to help them get started on this journey if they want to. Really, it's about wanting to not just like lose weight, but to lose weight permanently and cultivate a way of living that's uh, healthy and joyful. Well, I'm definitely going to go to your website and download that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'll be happy to happy to send you a copy of that. So um, it's been it's an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for, for hosting me. And, and uh, you know, I, I love the work that you do. And it's really nice to connect with a fellow empath. Thank you, Jonathan. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot, and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, 
please call 843-695-7218 or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook. And like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience.